Welcome and thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. I'm Mihal Mahuna. Check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website on www.thehealthzoneshow.com If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get The Health Zone Show delivered to your inbox every week and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com. Today I'm talking with author and nutritionist in women's health, Dr. Marilyn Glenville. Hello, Marilyn. Hello, Miho. How are you? Very good. How are you? Yes, very well, thank you. So tell me, Marilyn, how did you get into this area of health? Well, I've been in this field now almost, well, over 30 years, actually. And originally I trained as a psychologist and was very interested in the whole idea of premenstrual syndrome being a particularly difficult women's issue. And it was from there that I became interested in all different women's hormonal problems. And that's really taken me over the last 30 or so years, looking after women of all ages and stages of their lives, but looking at it from the nutritional side, looking at them, yes, helping them emotionally, but also physically as well. What kind of hormone imbalances can women experience, Marilyn? Well, quite a few, actually, and that's the trouble. We have a, a roller coaster of hormones every month, and then we go through a stage in our life called the menopause, where we have another hormonal transition. And we're talking about any kind of menstrual problems. It could be for young girls, it could be painful periods, heavy periods, even periods that stop for a certain a number of ta- months or even years for them. And then we look at polycystic ovary syndrome. You're talking about premenstrual syndrome, endometriosis, fibroids, infertility and miscarriage. And then we're going through then towards the menopause and things like prevention of osteoporosis. So as women, we do have a lot of issues connected to our hormone balances, unfortunately. What kind of symptoms could they experience as a result of these hormones? Well, they can affect us both physically and mentally, and often will give symptoms that seemingly might seem unrelated. There could be effects on energy, particularly moods like irritability, aggressive outbursts, crying spells, even sort of fears and anxiety, forgetfulness, inability to concentrate, even digestive problems and lack of sex drive. So there's quite a few different symptoms that these hormone imbalances can actually give a woman. And she may not realize that there may be one underlying cause that could make a difference if those hormones were put back into balance again. Does stress affect women's hormones? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's one of the ones that maybe isn't considered enough. And obviously that stress may be things that they can't control. But it's it's interesting because even in a younger woman in her 20s, if she goes through a trauma or a sudden bereavement, her periods could stop for up to six months. It's the it's the only system in our body that our body can shut down without killing us. So it's it's that ability to take the energy away from the reproductive system in a situation where the body's registering that we need more energy to cope. So yes, it can have quite a profound effect on the, the female hormone system. Is there anything that they could do to say to reduce the stress and the effects that it has on them physically, mentally, Marilyn? Well, it's obviously looking at what we can control and some things there may be 
things that we can do where the stress is external. That might be financial or even personal relationships, um, stress at work. So those things we may be able to control or we may not. There are certain nutrients like the B vitamins, magnesium, which we call nature's tranquilizer, things like the herb Siberian ginseng that can help us cope more easily and help to calm the body down. But one interesting aspect that often is not mentioned, that the way we eat and our pattern of eating, including our blood sugar levels, can make a difference as to how stressed we feel. Because when our blood sugar drops and we go into what we call low blood sugar or hypoglycemia, our body actually releases the stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. So depending on how we eat and the gaps between food and the sort of foods we're eating, whether it's a quick fix like a cup of tea and a biscuit or a chocolate bar or living on coffee during the day, it can actually make us feel more stressed than we should be. So there are really very practical things that a woman can do that even though she might not be able to control the stress outside of her, can actually make her feel less stressed and more able to cope with those external pressures. Do you think hormone-disrupting chemicals coming from the environment affect women as well? Yes, they do. And obviously, again, it's one of those, can, what can we control? So it's all about things that we can do something about. Some of them we may not be able to. But research over the last few years has really looked at where these chemicals may be coming from. Obviously, they can affect men. And there are concerns that sperm counts are dropping because of these endocrine disrupting chemicals from coming from the environment. But we now know that young girls who would have gone through puberty around the age of 15 a number of years ago can now go, go through puberty around the age of eight. So they only they may disrupt the hormones. They also may mimic estrogen. So there can be issues around certain estrogen dependent conditions that women have like fibroids, endometriosis and certain breast cancers. So we're thinking of where these chemicals come from. Mainly they come from two places. It either would be pesticide residues. So there is some thinking that it would be better for us if we can where possible to go for organic foods. And we've had the issue in the UK where the environmental agency has found that a third of the fish in the UK rivers, the male fish, have become feminized because of these endocrine disrupting chemicals getting into the, the river system in the UK. We also get them from plastics as well as pesticide. So there's been a lot of work now about whether we should look at the water bottles that we're drinking from. And for people who go to the gym, there are now bottles where they say BPA free on them, which is bisphenol A free, which is a chemical that has a possible estrogenic action. But it's in any, it could be in any plastics that we're using and also cosmetics and moisturizers. So there can be chemicals in those that women may be rubbing on their skin on a daily basis, especially around you know, very vulnerable areas. So it's thinking about how can we in effect clean up our diet so that we have less chemicals coming in from the food but also whether we go for more natural toiletries and cosmetics so we've got less of a chemical load going into the body. Marilyn, are there any herbs or supplements that you would recommend for women to take to help balance their hormone? 
Yes, I, I would. I, I Obviously, my, my focus is always getting people to eat well, and I really want them to have a healthy diet as possible and go for organic where they can financially, and they can get it, they can obtain it. And that's really what I feel is the foundation of our health for all of us at any age, and to get our blood sugar in balance and think about the different foods that we're eating and ones that we should leave out. But I also think, after being in this field for over 30 years now, that when somebody is thinking about turning their health around, maybe they've got an issue that they want to eliminate, maybe it's something going on with fertility, or there may be other hormonal issues, and they're working towards a goal, then I think certain nutrients can be very useful. And there's really good evidence now in the medical literature for certain female hormone problems where certain particular vitamins and minerals have been studied that have a huge impact on hormone balance. So my general recommendation for a woman would be to take a multivitamin and mineral and to take one that's appropriate for her age. So a woman after the menopause needs the focus on other nutrients, particularly towards bone health, more than a younger woman does. Or there may be a woman who's aiming to get pregnant and she'd be better with a, a combination of nutrients that's focused on fertility. So I would say, along with that good healthy diet, to take a multivitamin and mineral. I would also suggest some vitamin C. It is uh, one that we can't manufacture in the body, so we have to get it from our food. And I know everybody doesn't do so well as they could do on the fruit and vegetables every day. So I would suggest an extra vitamin C. And the other one that I think is really important are the omega-3 fats. We get them from oily fish, we get them from egg yolks, we also get them from flax seeds. And they are really beneficial. They have an anti-inflammatory effect on the body. They can help with things like joint pains. They lubricate the body from the inside out. And they help keep the hormones in balance by working on different hormone receptors. So they have a, a balancing effect generally. So they would be the ones that I would say would be most important. And then depending on the hormone imbalance, other herbs might be added in, depend on whether a woman's aiming to get pregnant, or she's got something like fibroids or endometriosis, or it's just a question of getting her back into a regular cycle. So the three supplements, the multivitamin and mineral, omega-3 and vitamin C would almost be the, the standard supplement program and other things would be added in depending on her goal and what she wants to achieve with her health. And Marilyn, are there any practical changes that a woman can make to this, even to their lifestyle to balance their hormones as well? Yeah, so it is thinking about the, the stress levels and what they can do to help make any changes. Sometimes as women, we're not very good for asking for help and we tend to think, you know, we need to do it all ourselves. But there may come a time where a woman has to think about delegating and actually asking for help. And I think for a number of women, the stress levels are high because they're in what's called this sandwich generation where they are looking after elderly parents or even elderly in-law parents. And they've also got children at home and they may also be working. So for women nowadays, there can be other stresses coming on because of the pressures that they're under in sort of being torn in different ways of looking after 
two different generations at the same time. So that can be very difficult for them. I think also it's also thinking about, you know, where they can get some time for themselves, making sure the lifestyle and the exercise is there where possible, even if it's just going out for a walk on a lovely day, just for 15 minutes to get out and just have some breathing space. But also there are really simple things that women can do. I know we've talked about the diet side and I'm really keen on women balancing their blood sugar. But also there's groups of foods that are available to us as women that maybe a lot of women haven't thought about eating. They're called phytoestrogens and the name is a bit misleading because it implies that they're going to have an estrogenic activity. And for some women, they may be concerned about that if they've got a history of breast cancer or a history of a condition that actually is driven by estrogen, like fibroids or endometriosis. But the term is misleading. They actually have a balancing effect on hormones. And when we look at all the different cultures around the world, they eat a lot of these foods. And they've looked at breast cancer rates in certain traditional cultures, which are much lower than ours. They've also looked at men's health, like prostate cancer. And the men in these traditional cultures who eat a lot of these phytoestrogens actually have a lower prostate cancer death rate than we do in the West. So they are really important in terms of balancing hormones. And when I give my talk in Cork, and around the rest of Ireland, I will explain why these work as balancing hormone foods rather than supplying estrogen. But when we think of all the cultures around the world, they would use these foods a lot. And mostly we get these phytoestrogens from what we call beans. So we think of things like hummus from the Middle East, from the chickpeas. You think of dal, the lentils from India, soya, yes, China and Japan. And people would have been brought up on these foods and eaten fair quantities of them. It's just that we've gone away from eating those kinds of foods. We get them from flax seeds as well. So they are really useful when we're thinking of any kind of hormone imbalance, even younger women and then women going through the menopause as well. So we need to get these back into our food in the ways that they have been eaten for centuries in these traditional cultures. What do you think are the causes of weight gain then? Well, yes, a couple of things. Obviously, we may not be exercising as much as we would have done previously. And of course, in generations ago, we would have been much more active, especially as women, because we wouldn't have had a washing machine. We'd have had to carry thing, everything home from the market. So we wouldn't have had cars and supermarkets where you can buy sort of a whole week's shopping and put it in the back of the car. So we do have a physical situation that's changed just because of a generation situation. But I think really the major thing for me is what's going on with the diet in terms of sugar. It is, I know, very topical at the moment. I have been talking about it for 30 years and it's always been seen that fat has been the culprit, that fat is bad, fat is fattening, but we have to come to realize that it's not the culprit it seemed to be, and that it's actually sugar and what we call refined carbohydrates that are the biggest issue. They are hidden now, not only in obvious sweet foods that you think of cakes and biscuits, you know they're going to be sweet and they're going to contain sugar. 
The difficulty is, is what we call this hidden sugar in savoury foods. So it can be in, it will be in tomato ketchup, spaghetti sauces, baked beans, mayonnaise, salad dressings. So over a day, even if people don't add sugar to their tea and coffee, in some research, some people are getting 46 teaspoons of added sugar a day because of it being hidden in these other foods. And just an example, even in a fruit yogurt, if you take the fruit out of the equation, there could be eight teaspoons of added sugar within that yogurt. So it's, it's become very common to be added in. It's causing a lot of issues with weight gain because it makes the body produce, have to produce more insulin, which is our fat storing hormone. So it has issues definitely for women and for some women, they become over time insulin resistance, which is then sort of the, the type 2 diabetes situation. Or in younger women, they, it will manifest as polycystic ovary syndrome. So it's a big issue for us in terms of our weight. But they now will think it could be linked to things like heart disease and also even Alzheimer's. So there's a lot of research going on that, that sugar, yes, can cause us to gain weight, but over time it's going to have a, a bigger health risk across all of the illnesses that we class as being degenerative that come on because we're getting older. So uh, it's something I think we have to be really keen on in terms of reading labels, making different choices, and just thinking about are there other natural sweeteners that we can use. And interesting, while I'm in Ireland, I've got a a book coming out called Natural Alternatives to Sugar. It'll be out the week I'm there, which is actually looking at all the different natural sweeteners on the market because some of them are not as natural as one might perceive them to be, and there's a lot of confusion around them. So, And it's really talking also about the artificial sweeteners and how we can get the sweetness from our food without loading it up with a lot of um, different refined sugars. Would you have any advice to give someone who has a lot of weight to lose? Yes, obviously, I would say they have to think about getting the added sugar out of the diet and also the refined carbohydrates. So what we're talking about really is anything that causes a fast hit on the bloodstream, and that will raise blood sugar, it will raise blood glucose. And because it does that quickly, the pancreas is being asked to release more insulin which then is the message to store more of that food as fat and not burn it as energy. So it's about cleaning up the diet, reading food labels, and obviously there needs to be look at portion size as well and putting exercise in place. I think it's more thinking about their health. I found that if people focus on their health and the goal that they're after and why they want to be eating well because they have a a health issue that they want to change, the weight itself will come off automatically. The difficulty is if people do a diet, it implies they're going to do something, a diet, and then stop it and go back to eating in a way maybe like they were before. And the difficulty then is that that weight that came off can go back on again. And particularly for women, they end up what we call yo-yo dieting, where they crash diet and they not only lose fat, but they're losing muscle and water. And then when they come off of this very restrictive diet, all the weight they lost 
goes back on as fat. So the next diet has to be stricter. And in the end, it's going to affect their metabolism. It makes it more difficult to lose weight. So I'm always suggesting to people that they end up with a way of eating that becomes a way of life, that for 80% of the time we're eating well. And the choices we make every day are the really important ones. And then when we go out for a wedding or a birthday party or a holiday, that 20%, the body will cope with the cake and everything else that's going on there. But it's what we do every day that counts. And we don't want to be ending up thinking of, I'm on a diet and it's socially restricting and you can't go out with friends. You want to end up with this way of eating that just becomes a way of life, that the choices are different, it's a different attitude around food, and that it, then the weight itself isn't a problem because it actually automatically gets lower. So it's, it's a different way of looking at this whole thing rather than a diet which somebody's going to do and then stop. It's all about a different attitude and a way of thinking about food in a different way. And what are your thoughts on a person's emotional well-being being an impact on how they can lose weight? Yes, of course. And it is thinking about, obviously, for some people, and especially women, I know we've talked about stress, and that itself can push somebody to go for the comfort food because they're unhappy or they're stressed or they're bored. And sometimes it is thinking about changing what's going on on that stress side, which then changes their feelings around the food or whether there's other substitutes for that. And sometimes distractions can help. They've looked at research where, you know, people can do something else in that moment where they might go for a craving or a binge, then, you know, it can change the way they feel and that craving can sort of go off. So it's how we may be able to change our attitude and even the way we look at food and what our feelings around it are. And there may need to be some psychological changes as well. But if we can get this whole aspect of the mind and body, which are not separate, they are very much connected. And oftentimes, as we change one, whether it's the physical side, the way we think and the way we feel and the decisions we make change. And that obviously then changes the choices that we make and then we feel differently physically. So it's all about going into really a very positive spiral then rather than a negative circle. So it's about making small changes which then feed off each other. And interestingly, if people start to make small changes in the clinic, they've often come back to me and said, well, I'm feeling much better. They've only made a few small changes. What else can I do next? And sometimes a step at a time is actually easier to manage than somebody who's told where well, you need to do all of these things at once and it may seem totally overwhelming to them and they think, actually, I can't do this. Whereas a small change, something simple, can make a huge difference to how they feel and how successful they feel at doing it. They can feel motivated, they can feel the difference in terms of their energy, their well-being and then the feeling is well what else can I do in terms of looking after myself what's the next step I could take can you talk to me about the connection between gut flora and good bacteria in helping with weight loss and type 2 diabetes yes it's very interesting because 
When we think of our gut flora, we now consider it to be a very, very much an ecosystem. There is this whole diversity of bacteria going on with our di in with our digestive system, and we have got billions of these bacteria in there. And I suppose it's only in the last few years that the research on this area has really exploded. And we do know that they improve our nutrition. Those bacteria help to man manufacture B vitamins and they help us digest our food more efficiently. We actually know that 70% of our immune system is in our gut. So at this time of year when we may be thinking of colds and flu and I would think of zinc and vitamin C, which is brilliant. We also have to think about these beneficial bacteria as well and this immune potential within our digestive system. But they also help us detoxify and they help food. They stop it sitting in the gut too long where it could ferment or even putrefy. They improve the elimination of, the, of our waste. And for us as women and the whole female hormone side of it, they actually help eliminate what we might class as old hormones, that hormones that the body has finished with. But over this last few years, they've been looking at the whole aspect of the balance of the gut flora and how we might absorb calories from our food, fat from our food, and whether if, if we manipulated the gut bacteria, could it help people to lose weight? And they've done a study with mice and they bred some mice and put them on a diet where they actually became obese. And there was another group of mice that were kept on a diet that kept them slim. And then what they did, and all they did, was take the gut bacteria out of the obese mice, put it in the slim mice who were still eating the same diet that kept them slim, and those slim mice became obese. So they're realizing that by changing the gut bacteria, it could change then absorption of calories and the possibility of becoming insulin resistant, which would then predispose us to type 2 diabetes. So they're even looking at using probiotics for women in pregnancy who might then, who might or can develop gestational diabetes where they are at risk of, of diabetes in pregnancy and not when they're not pregnant. So there's really a lot of potential with these bacteria in the ability to help balance our hormones, improve detoxification, keep us strong and healthy in terms of our immune function, but also the ability to actually keep us a healthy weight. So we are thinking now of people who have to take an antibiotic, and of course that antibiotic could be crucial, but it's going to wipe out those beneficial bacteria. And many women know that if they take an antibiotic, they can then get thrush, which is a yeast infection. Because normally those good bacteria are keeping negative bacteria and yeast under control. But of course, when they take an antibiotic, it's not discriminating between the good and the bad bacteria. It's wiping all of it out. And so the yeast that is normally kept under control becomes dominant. So there's a lot of research now. What, what nobody knows yet would be the best balance of these bacteria because there are billions of different um, species. It's a question of looking at the ones that are going to be most helpful. But the research is really interesting, especially when you think about weight and how 
they may change our absorption of calories. And, and they do know already that even in people, there's a difference between the gut bacteria in somebody who's a normal weight and somebody who's obese. So it's questioning what causes what and how, how could we manipulate that to help somebody lose weight along with getting them to eat really healthily anyway. And Marilyn, would you recommend taking probiotics during a treatment of antibiotics? Yes, I would. Um, the best thing is to take them alongside the antibiotic, but a different time of the day. So if the antibiotics are going in in the morning, take the probiotics in the evening. And I would suggest take them for up to three months after the course of antibiotics. Women who are on the pill or on HRT, those automatically will lower the gut bacteria, so it's worth them taking a probiotic alongside um, the HRT or the pill. And also people under a lot of stress, it can affect the, the gut bacteria. So there are different things that actually may reduce it generally, but the obvious one would be the antibiotics. And I would suggest, yes, take them, split it so that it's a different time of day and take them for about three months afterwards because we want to recolonize the gut again. One of our listeners has been bulimic for 20 years, Madeline, and, and due to endometriosis, she's 11 stone. She's tried exercising but doesn't work because it's bloating that's causing her weight gain. What would you recommend for her to take the retention and the fluid out of her body? So she's got weight gain but she feels it's bloating, does she? That's exactly it, but she's bulimic as well. Yeah, yeah so obviously she would probably need some help psychologically with the bulimia side of it. And of course, there may be, even though she's got extra weight, there may be deficiencies because she's not been eating, obviously, as well as she could do. So with endometriosis, it is an estrogen dependent condition. So it grows in the presence of estrogen. So obviously, we'd look at the beneficial bacteria, also liver function as well. But it would be about getting her into a healthy eating pattern and it might require both psychological and nutritional support for her because this is something else that's going on at the same time. But in the clinic, because I have a clinic in Ireland as well, we've got one in Cork and also Dublin and Galway, we would test blood tests for nutritional deficiencies because in this case it is possible that she is deficient in certain nutrients and they need to be corrected in order to get her back into good health and get her back into eating well and obviously addressing this underlying endometriosis. And Marilyn, do you think a food allergy or even intolerance could make it difficult for a person to lose weight? Yes, it could do. Um, and obviously there can be blood tests for that as well. So very often things have to be individualized for people. Sometimes there may be general recommendations across the board, like I mentioned, a multivitamin and mineral omega-3 and vitamin C. But in certain cases, it's about looking at somebody's history, looking at what they're eating now, and thinking then, do they have any issues in terms of food sensitivities? Is there something else going on? Could it be a deficiency that's a, a problem? Or also, we can now test the gut bacteria. We have this potential with a stool test to look at the levels of those beneficial bacteria. There could be a yeast overgrowth in there. And if somebody's got a yeast overgrowth like candida, it will actually make them crave sugary, fermented, sweet foods. So it may not be that it's an allergy that's doing it, but something underlying going on in the digestive system. So the potential now nutritionally 
very different from when I started 30 odd years ago is the ability to be able to test somebody in different ways from what they would do with their doctor. All of those tests are really important. But sometimes well, people will get all the tests back from the GP and there's actually nothing wrong medically. But there can definitely be something wrong nutritionally, whether it's a nutritional deficiency, whether it's changes in the gut bacteria, whether it's a food sensitivity. There can be a lot. We can test for adrenal stress now, which we could never do a number of years ago. So potential is really there to see what's going on. And for me, from the nutritional side, it's always about asking what's the cause with anything. Because if we can find out what the cause of the problem is, whether it's a, an imbalance in gut bacteria, whether it's a deficiency, it's all about then treating that cause. So we're trying to change that person's underlying physiology to give them a long-term solution rather than just treating the symptoms. So even with things like irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, it's always a question of why is the bowel irritable? Is it a reaction to certain foods? Is it stress that they're under that's causing that? Is it changes in the gut bacteria? Or, as we had one lady in the clinic, she actually had a parasite in there that was picked up in the stool test. And if you can find the cause, then you can actually treat that and obviously make then a huge difference to how that person feels and their health now and in the future. What about an underactive thyroid? Could this have an impact on a person actually gaining weight as well? Yes, it could. And obviously a GP can check for that. We do check for that in the clinic, but a GP may check for that already. And obviously if it's underactive, that needs to be treated. Um, obviously we would use ways of trying to improve her metabolism anyway in the way that she eats. But it's thinking about all of these different aspects, what might be the cause. It might be a combination of two or three things, but certain things may have already been ruled out medically. But of course, underactive thyroid has to be thought of. And if it is underactive, her GP would treat her anyway. And is there a way to lose weight naturally? Yes, there is. There is. Obviously, things like thyroid issues have to be ruled out. But definitely, and it is looking at getting the, the diet right, getting a way of eating right, looking at exercise. But there are simple ways of doing this because if we understand why the weight goes on and what the mechanism is in the body, this whole thing about controlling insulin, which is the fat storing hormone of the body, then it doesn't necessarily have to be huge calorie restriction because we just change the type of food so the message to the body isn't to store fat but to burn it as energy. So the benefit the person gets is not only the weight loss but they also get their energy back because the food that we are eating should be the fuel, just like putting petrol in the car, that actually gives us the energy to do what we want with our life. And if our body's storing that food as fat, we are not getting the energy we should do from our food. And then people feel very lethargic. They just feel that they don't have the energy that they should have. That's going to affect them mentally as well as physically because they just can't do the sort of things that they want to do. And then you're talking about a whole effect on their quality of their life. So would you be advocating for people to eat non-processed foods as opposed to processed foods? Yes, I would, absolutely. And to look at the balance of protein and carbohydrate 
and looking at the refined carbohydrates like the white bread, the white pasta, making small changes where the food is still delicious, but the effect on our body is completely different. So it is making those changes and doing it one step at a time if, if a person finds that easier. And then, of course, we need to think of the, the lifestyle side of it because stress can make somebody go for that comfort food generally and propel them to eat foods that are unhealthy and also getting the exercise back into our lives because it's it's something that we almost have to fit in nowadays it's not part and parcel of our everyday life as it was a generation ago and marilyn if a person has an an average condition how much does the food that they eat have a bearing on the symptoms they have? Definitely. Um, when we think of arthritis, it's an inflammatory condition in the body. Yes, some of it can be wear and tear as well. And we are some of the foods that we eat can have an acidic reaction that can create more of an inflammatory response within the joints. But there's good research now on the omega-3 fatty acids, which have this anti-inflammatory effect. So those things we get from oily fish, we get them from egg yolks. We do a blood test in the clinic, which looks at the ratio of the omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. Because if we have too much omega-6, which we can get from vegetable oils and also even in primrose oil, which is something that women have often taken for years, the body can produce more inflammation. And that inflammation can not only be felt in the joints where it's more obvious, but it could cause an inflammatory bowel disorder, it could cause inflammation anywhere, either inside the body or even on the skin, where we're thinking, thinking redness, soreness, like eczema. So by making us go towards more of a food that are more rich in these omega-3 fatty acids, we have more of an anti-inflammatory effect on the body. So the whole emphasis now from the science is that inflammation could be the key to a lot of our degenerative illnesses, like heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, that we need to think about controlling inflammation. And we can do that from the food that we eat. There's good work on some of the herbs like turmeric, whereby there's certain things we can add to our food that are going to give us more of an anti-inflammatory effect. And the other interesting one is vitamin D. And that's another one that we would test routinely in the clinic. There's been a, a lot of work on if you correct the vitamin D deficiency, the joint pains go. And it's something in the UK, we've now got rickets back in children that we thought we'd got rid of 40 years ago. So this is a huge health risk. It's unfortunately one of those where you don't feel any symptoms of a, of a, a deficiency in vitamin D, but it's become such a common occurrence that now in the clinic every woman that comes in I'm checking her vitamin D levels and some of them are shockingly low so it needs to be corrected and it's not only connected to joint pains but there's work now on making sure the vitamin D levels are good because it may increase the risk of breast cancer heart disease type 2 diabetes so it has a huge impact on our health as well as the one we've always known in terms of bone health and the absorption of calcium. So I think there are a lot of women walking around with a vitamin D deficiency and they don't even know it. So I think it's something that every woman should get tested.
And Marilyn, you mentioned turmeric there as well. Is there a best way to take turmeric? Well, obviously, you can take it in supplement form, and I do use supplements where it's contained in. I use a um, number of supplements from the Natural Health Practice. People can see that on naturalhealthpractice.com, where you can get turmeric actually in capsule form, or you can add it in as a spice, as people would have it in curries, that sort of thing. Um, garlic, ginger, all of those can have the ability to have these anti-inflammatory effects. So there are a lot of different herbs that are very useful. And obviously, definitely the things that where the omega-3 levels of good. So in the oily fish like the sardines, the mackerel, the salmon, all of those that we would have eaten probably a fair amount of years ago, we're not eating so much of them. And egg yolks are also a good one as well. I heard with turmeric, take it with black pepper to ensure the absorption of it. And I do use a supplement that's got the black pepper, the turmeric, okay. olive leaf, all of that in there. So yes, combinations are often better than just the single herbs on their own. So all people can add them in a combination in their food as well. And what are your thoughts on the prevention of osteoporosis then, Marilyn? Well, I'm talking on um, Balancing Hormones Naturally in Cork on Monday the 29th of February at the Clarion Hotel. That's between 7 and 9.30 in the evening, organised wonderfully by the Here's Health store. Um, I do also, I've written a book on prevention of osteoporosis, so I will mention that during the evening, but it's a, more in terms of balancing hormones naturally for women of any age where, they, where their hormones are going out of balance, right from younger women right through to the menopause. What do you think are the best supplements for women to actually take? I think absolutely a multivitamin and mineral that would contain then everything. We're talking the B vitamins, magnesium especially. We think of that as nature's tranquilizer. It has such a relaxing, calming effect on the body. Um, it needs to have all the antioxidants in there and vitamin D, especially as D3. So I think if, if women go for a multivitamin and mineral, it's going to give them the the best, a bit of everything, actually, almost like an insurance policy. I would suggest always extra omega-3 because most of us are not getting it from our diet, and I would include vitamin C alongside that as well. And if a person is feeling tired, Marilyn, is there a possibility a vitamin deficiency may be contributing to this? Yes, absolutely. I'd suggest, obviously, they see their GP if they want to just check for thyroid or anemia, but they may all come back as being fine. And we're then looking for another deficiency that may be causing that. It may be a combination of deficiencies. It could also be the effect of stress on the adrenal glands that's actually causing issues in the body. Or it could be problems with um, digestion. Because obviously, we can eat good food, but we have to digest and absorb it. And it's just as important for hormone balance as it is for our bone health. So sometimes the issue is actually, are we absorbing the food efficiently so that our body can use it? And there may be issues with absorption. And sometimes, especially after some of the talks, women will come up to me and some of them actually find it difficult to gain weight, even though they're eating well. And in that situation, there can be a problem with malabsorption. So it's just a, as much of a problem being overweight as it is to be underweight. We're always trying to reach a balance. And if somebody is eating enough, but their weight doesn't go on, 
then we have to think of malabsorption and that's going to affect their energy, it's going to affect their health. So there can be deficiencies in people who are overweight because we talk about people being overfed and undernourished, that they could be eating a lot of food but the food doesn't have the nutrients it should have so they are still deficient as much as this person who may be underweight who's not absorbing properly. So it's trying to look at people in a very personalised way and trying to find what's going on underlying their health problem other than just the symptoms that they're thinking about, such as energy, not sleeping, there could be skin problems. Sometimes all of the symptoms could actually be connected. There could be one cause that's driving them all and that cause needs to be sorted out and then the symptoms will go. So we're trying to do a bit of detective work, doing some tests that maybe are more unusual than they've done from their GP, but the medical ones are, are just as useful. It's just trying to look at their health in a, in a different way. What are your thoughts on adrenal fatigue then? Well, I'm talking on balancing hormones naturally. I will bring in, uh, talk about the adrenal side of it as well and show people what it looks like because I've got a slide where it shows what the adrenal test looks like because we can actually see whether somebody's adrenally fatigued. We can also call it adrenal exhaustion. But it's fixable. That's the beauty of the nutritional side, that even if somebody's got an imbalanced gut flora or they've got a candida overgrowth or they're deficient in nutrients, all of that can be changed. It's modifiable. It's replacing those nutrients back into their diet or taking them as supplements for a period of time. It's getting the probiotics in. It's calming down the adrenal function. It's getting them back into good health again. So tests are useful because they can pick up the cause, but it also means then we can do something about it. So I think looking at somebody as a whole person, the mind and the body is really important and not just to think of one system because every system in the body is connected to every other. And as we get one system back into balance, it will have this positive domino effect on all of the other symptom, systems. And sometimes it's the adrenal glands can be affecting the thyroid. And so by changing and helping that person with their stress side of it, it actually improves the thyroid function. Same with the hormone side of it. Stress or blood sugar imbalances can be causing that woman to have premenstrual symptoms. We change the, the stress and the blood sugar side of it and the premenstrual symptoms go. So it's about looking at these hormones in, you know, at this person as a, as a whole person, mind and body, and aiming to help them get back into good health. How important do you think it is to take supplements for fertility and during pregnancy? Oh, absolutely crucial. I think definitely for pregnancy. We've known about folic acid for a long time, but I think an antenatal supplement is really important. And what else the research is showing now with the omega-3s, that when a woman takes those in the last trimester of pregnancy, the omega-3s work on the brain and eye development of the baby. So they can be really helpful in terms of um, giving that baby the boost in terms of cognitive development in that last third of the pregnancy. Obviously, I do work a lot with fertility, and I'm working with both a man and a woman, either to help them get pregnant naturally, maybe 
it's taking them longer than they would have hoped for. And the research really does come into its own in terms of antioxidants for men, things like L-arginine, the antioxidants for the woman and zinc also. I use a couple of supplements. One of them is called Fertility Support for Women, and there's a, a Fertility Support for Men. And also they use these same supplements as they go through IVF treatment. So they may have had a couple of failed IVFs and they're going again. And the aim is to, Im to improve the success rate. So it's either to help a couple get pregnant naturally, or if they know they're going for IVF, it's to try and help improve the success rate so that it's, it's a better chance of it working the next time round. So it's all about improving sperm health, egg quality, giving that woman and, and her partner the best chance of, of getting pregnant and also staying pregnant. Because for some women, the issue may actually may be miscarriage rather than getting pregnant. And that's just important, as important to look at both the man and the woman on that side to get them both as healthy as possible before she gets pregnant again. So I've written a book called Getting Pregnant Faster, which does go through all of the nutrients that are important, all the lifestyle issues and what they do either to help themselves conceive naturally or to put in place what's needed for the next IVF treatment. Marilyn, what are the ways women can get their immune systems operating at an optimum level? Well, I always think about the beneficial bacteria because of this 70% of our immune system being in our gut. So it's putting in those probiotics. And if you can get a probiotic that contains prebiotics, even better. So the prebiotics are the food that the probiotics feed off because we want them to stay in our gut and to you know, have a good amount of these beneficial bacteria there. Obviously, we think of things like zinc and vitamin C. All of those are important as well. So it's about keeping ourselves as healthy as possible. We may come down with certain infections, but we want them, we want our body to fight the battle and to be as strong as possible. So we're hoping that with certain ones like vitamin C, that it will shorten the duration of the cold. It may not necessarily prevent us getting it, but it could shorten the duration. So it's about keeping ourselves as healthy as possible. Vitamin D's got some good work also on immunity. So we think of it as a sunshine vitamin, which we don't get very much of at this time of year. So there are there's good research on certain nutrients that have a beneficial effect on our immune function. And what are your thoughts on slowing down the aging process then, Marilyn, and having a good quality of life? Yeah, so we are talking about how we change our health now, which is important because women will be coming to the talks who've got problems in terms of energy, there may be mood swings, there could be hormonal, definitely hormonal issues going on with the cycle. And it's important to get them back into good health now. That That is really is the goal. But by doing that, we are also changing somebody's future health. So we are all going to get older. It's just a question of can we slow down that aging process from the inside as well as the outside. And it's the inside that's the most important. And by doing that, to work on prevention. So the big thing now is preventative medicine. That can we put steps in place no matter what age we are to work on prevention of these illnesses that are come as we get older, like the type 2 diabetes, the Alzheimer's, the heart disease, the strokes, 
all of those, if we work on them earlier and by changing our diet and getting ourselves into good health that have made the difference in terms of how we feel at this moment, we are also putting into a place the steps that can work on prevention. And that's where a lot of the research is going now that because we can live longer, we do want to live that with a good quality of life as well as quantity because it's no good having that extra quantity if you, if you can't do the things you want to do. So the research and what I'm talking about in the talks is all about how we change our health now and how that then changes our risk of things like Alzheimer's, heart disease, type 2 diabetes. It's all connected by what we're doing at this moment. And it's really powerful. It's exciting to see the research there and to see what difference we can make. But it does require us to take responsibility for our health. That's the difference. It is looking at the changes we can make, the potential we have for ourselves in how we can keep ourselves mentally sharp, our energy good over the next, you know, for women, they can live 30 to 50 years past the menopause. So there's a lot of time there to live that well but it's the steps that need to be put into place to make that happen. And they're not difficult steps, it's just I don't think everybody knows of the ones that they should be taking and how easy and practical it can be to put those into place. Where and when are you speaking in Ireland and how can women find out more information and book a seat? Yeah, so I'm speaking in Cork on Monday the 29th of February. Is it mainly for Cork, Michal, or all over? No, it, it, this is nationwide. You'd be going out nationwide, Okay, yeah. so I would think about it's Cork on Monday the 29th of February. I'll be on Tralee on Tuesday the 1st of March. Kilkenny, Wednesday the 2nd of March. Newbridge, Thursday the 3rd of March. And Dublin, Saturday the 5th of March and each of those I would say go on to naturalmedicine.ie and they'll be able to see the different venues that I'll be at and a lot of them are being organized by the different stores in those places which is wonderful so people will know you know there's a good place to get the different foods that I'm recommending so I'd go to naturalmedicine.ie or glenvillenutrition.ie to see the different places and it's 7 to 9 30 every evening at the different venues, and then Saturday morning, 10 to 12.30 in Dublin. But it'd be lovely to see people there and, you know, to come along. And I am around the whole time, even during the break and after the talk, and I do spend time answering personal questions as well. So there will be time to speak to me personally, and I'll have my nutritionist from Ireland there as well. So there'll be a good time to have a chat if they've got specific issues they want some help with. Thanks so much, Marilyn, for your time. Okay, nice to speak to you anytime. Well, thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. Tune in next week for more exciting and interesting topics and guests in the areas of spirituality, relationships, finance, creativity, health, career and much, much more. In the meantime, check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Hellstone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Hellstone or log on to our website www.thehellstoneshow.com 
if you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Headstone Show delivered to your inbox every week, and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show, or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com. Well, until next week, have a fantastic, healthy and happy week.